I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to the first episode of the second edition of Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You're doing selfless and important work, and it's appreciated. The Return of the Birds podcast is ad-free. So if you hear advertising inserted into this episode, those interruptions are not and were never part of our program. We do not receive any money, goods, services, or acreage from advertising. And I have a favor to ask. If you know someone or meet someone who likes being outdoors, being outside, or being in nature, please tell them about Return of the Birds. It would really help our show take flight. Thank you. Preface to the first edition. This is mainly a book about the birds, or more properly, an invitation to the study of ornithology, and the purpose of the author will be carried out in proportion as it awakens and stimulates the interest of the reader in this branch of natural history. Though written less in the spirit of exact science than with the freedom and love of old acquaintance, yet I have in no instance taken liberties with facts, or allowed my imagination to influence me to the extent of giving a false impression or wrong coloring. I have reaped my harvest more in the woods than in the study. What I offer, in fact, is a careful and conscientious record of actual observations and experiences, and as true as it stands written, every word of it. But what has interested me most in ornithology is the pursuit, the chase, the discovery, that part of it which is akin to hunting, fishing, and wild sports, in which I could carry with me in my eye and ear wherever I went. I cannot answer with much confidence the poet's inquiry. Hast thou named all the birds without a gun? But I have done what I could to bring home the river and sky with the sparrow I heard, singing at dawn or in the alder bough. In other words, I have tried to present a live bird, a bird in the woods or the fields, with the atmosphere and the associations of the place, and not merely a stuffed and labeled specimen. A more specific title for the volume would have better suited me, but... Not being able to satisfy myself in this direction, I cast about for a word thoroughly in the atmosphere and spirit of the book, which I hope I have found in Wake Robin, the common name for the white trillium, which blooms in all our woods and which marks the arrival of all the birds. Introduction In coming before the public with a newly made edition of my writings, what can I say to my reader at this stage of our acquaintance that will lead to a better understanding between us? Probably nothing. We understand each other very well already. I have offered myself as his guide to certain matters out of doors, and to a few matters indoors, and he has accepted me upon my own terms, and has, on the whole, been better pleased with me than I had any reason to expect. For this I am duly grateful. Why say more? Yet, now that I am upon my feet, so to speak, and palaver is the order, I will keep on a few minutes longer. It is now nearly a quarter century since my book, Wake Robin, was published. I have lived nearly as many years in the world 
as I had lived when I wrote its principal chapters. Other volumes have followed, and still others. When asked how many there are, I often have to stop and count them up. I suppose the mother of a large family does not have to count up her children to say how many there are. She sees their faces all before her. It is said of certain savage tribes who cannot count above five, and yet who own flocks and herds, that every native knows when he has got all his own cattle, not by counting, but by remembering each one individually. The savage is with his herds daily. The mother has the love of her children constantly in her heart. But when one's book goes forth from him, in a sense it never returns. It is like the fruit detached from the bough, and yet to sit down and talk of one's books as a father might talk of his sons, who had left his roof and gone forth to make their own way in the world, it is not an easy matter. The author's relation to his book is little more direct and personal after all, more a matter of will and choice than a father's relation to his child. The book does not change, and whatever its fortunes, it remains to the end what its author made it. The son is an evolution out of a long line of ancestry, and one's responsibility for this or that trait is often very slight. But the book is an actual transcript of his mind, and is wise or foolish according as he has made it so. Hence I trust my reader will pardon me if I shrink from any discussion of the merits or demerits of these intellectual children of mine, or indulge in any very confidential remarks with regard to them. I cannot bring myself to think of my books as works, because so little work has gone into the making of them. It has all been play. I have gone a-fishing, or a-camping, or canoeing, and any new literary material has been the result. My corn has grown while I loitered or slept. The writing of the book was only a second and finer enjoyment of my holiday in the fields or woods. Not till the writing did it really seem to strike in and become part of me. A friend of mine, now an old man, who spent his youth in the woods of northern Ohio, who has written many books, says, quote, I never thought of writing a book till my self-exile, and then only to reproduce my old-time life to myself, end quote. The writing probably cured or alleviated a sort of homesickness. Such in a great measure has been my own case. My first book, Wake Robin, was written while I was a government clerk in Washington. It enabled me to live over again the days I'd passed with the birds and in the scenes of my youth. I wrote the book sitting at a desk in front of an iron wall. I was the keeper of a vault in which many millions of banknotes were stored. During my long periods of leisure, I took refuge in my pen. How my mind reacted from the iron wall in front of me and sought solace in memories of the birds and of the summer fields and woods. Most of the chapters of Winter Sunshine were written at the same desk. The sunshine there referred to is of a richer quality than is found in New York or New England. Since I left Washington in 1873, instead of an iron wall in front of my desk, I have had a large window that overlooks the Hudson and the wooded heights beyond, and I have exchanged the vault for a vineyard, Probably my mind reacted more vigorously in front of the former than it does from the latter. The vineyard winds its tendrils around me and detains me, and its loaded trellises are more pleasing to me than the closets of greenbacks. The only time there is a suggestion of an iron wall in front of me is in winter, when ice and snow have blotted out the landscape, and I find that it is in this season that my mind dwells most fondly upon my favorite themes. Winter drives a man back upon himself, and tests his powers of self-entertainment. Do such books as mine give a wrong impression of nature, and lead readers to expect more from a walk or a camp in the woods than they usually get? I have a few times had occasion to think so. I am not always aware myself how much pleasure I have had in a walk until I try to share it with my reader.
The heat of composition brings out the color and the flavor. We must not forget the illusions of all art. If my reader thinks he does not get from nature what I get from her, let me remind him that he can hardly know what he's got till he defines it to himself as I do and throws about it the witchery of words. Every artist does something more than copy nature. More comes out in his account than goes into the original experience. Most persons think the bee gets honey from the flowers, but she does not. Honey is a product of the bee. It is the nectar of the flowers with the bee added. What the bee gets from the flower is sweet water. This she puts through a process of her own and imparts it to her own quality. She reduces the water and adds to it a minute drop of formaic acid. It is this drop of herself that gives the delicious sting to her sweet. The bee, therefore, is the type of the true poet, the true artist. Her product always reflects her environment, and it reflects something of her environment knows not of. We taste the clover, the thyme, the linden, the sumac, and we also taste something that has its source in none of these flowers. The literary naturalist does not take liberties with facts. Facts are the floor upon which he lives. The more and fresher the facts, the better. I can do nothing without them, but I must give them my own flavor. I must impart to them a quality that heightens and intensifies them. To interpret nature is not to improve upon her. It is to draw her out, absorb her, and reproduce her, tinged with colors of the spirit. If I name every bird I see in my walk, describe its color and ways, etc., give a lot of facts or details about the birds, it's doubtful if my reader is interested. But if I relate the bird in some way to human life, to my own life, show what it is to me and what it is to the landscape and the season, then I do give my reader a live bird and not a labeled specimen. John Burroughs, 1895 Chapter 1 The Return of the Birds The spring in our northern climate may fairly be said to extend from the middle of March to the middle of June. At least the vernal tide continues to rise until a latter date. And it is not until after the summer solstice that the shoots and twigs begin to harden and turn to wood, or the grass to lose any of its freshness and succulency. It is this period that marks the return of the birds. One or two of the more hardy or half-domesticated species, like a song sparrow and the bluebird, usually arriving in March, while the rarer and more brilliant wood birds bring up the procession in June. But each stage of the advancing season gives prominence to certain species, as to certain flowers. The dandelion tells me when to look for the swallow, the dogtooth violet when to expect the wood thrush. And when I have found the wake robin in bloom, I know that the season is fairly inaugurated. With me, this flower is associated not merely with the awakening of robin, for he has been awake for some weeks, but with the universal awakening and rehabilitation of nature. Yet the coming and going of the birds is more or less a mystery and a surprise. We go out in the morning, no thrush or vireo is to be heard. We go out again, and every tree and grove is musical. Yet again, and all is silent. Who saw them come? Who saw them depart? This pert little winter wren, for instance, darting in and out of the fence, diving under rubbish here and coming up yards away? How does he manage with those little circular wings to compass degrees and zones? and arrive always in the nick of time. Last August I saw him in the remotest wilds of the Adirondacks, impatient and inquisitive as usual. A few weeks later, on the Potomac, 
I was greeted by the same little hearty busybody. Does he travel by easy stages from brush to brush and from wood to wood? Or has that compact little body force and courage to brave the night and upper air, and so achieve leagues at one pole? And yonder bluebird with the earth tinge on his breast and the sky tinge on his back. Did he come down out of heaven on that bright March morning when he told us so softly and plaintively that, if we pleased, spring had come? Indeed, there is nothing in the return of the birds more curious and suggestive than in the first appearance or rumors of the appearance of this little blue coat. The bird at first seems a mere wandering voice in the air. One hears its call or carol on some bright March morning, but is uncertain of its source or direction. It falls like a drop of rain when no cloud is visible. One looks and listens, but to no purpose. The weather changes. Perhaps a cold snap with snow comes on. And it may be a week before I hear the note again. And this time, or the next perchance, see the bird sitting on a stake in the fence, lifting his wing as he calls cheerily to his mate. Its notes now become daily more frequent. The birds multiply, and flitting from point to point, call and warble more confidently and gleefully. Their boldness increases till one sees them hovering with a saucy, inquiring air about barns and outbuildings, peeping into dovecotes and stable windows, inspecting knotholes and pump trees, intent only on a place to nest. They wage war against robins and wrens, pick quarrels with swallows, and seem to deliberate for days over the policy of taking forcible possession over one of the mud houses of the latter. But as the season advances, they drift more into the background. Schemes of conquest, which they at first seemed bent upon, are abandoned, and they settle down very quietly in their old quarters in remote, stumpy fields. Not long after the bluebird comes the robin, sometimes in March, but in most of the northern states, April is the month of the robin. In large numbers, they scour the fields and groves. You hear their piping in the meadow, in the pasture, on the hillside, walk in the woods, and the dry leaves rustle with the whir of their wings. The air is vocal with their cheery call. In excess of joy and vivacity, they run, leap, scream, chase each other through the air. diving and sweeping among the trees with perilous rapidity. In that free, fascinating, half-work, half-play pursuit called sugar-making, a pursuit which still lingers in many parts of New York, as in New England, the robin is one's constant companion. When the day is sunny and the ground bare, you meet him at all points and hear him at all hours. 
At sunset, on the tops of the tall maples, with look heavenward, and in a spirit of utter abandonment, he carols his simple strain. And sitting thus amid the stark, silent trees, above the wet, cold earth, with the chill of winter still in the air, there is no fitter or sweeter songster in the whole year round. It is in keeping with the scene and the occasion. How round and genuine the notes are, and how eagerly our ears drink them in. The first utterance, and the spell of winter is thoroughly broken. And the remembrance of it far off. Robin is one of the most native and democratic of our birds. He's one of the family, and seems much nearer to us than those rare exotic visitants, as the orchard starling or the rose-breasted grosbeak, with their distant, high-bred ways. Hardy, noisy, frolicsome, neighborly, and domestic in his habits, strong of wing and bold in spirit, he is the pioneer of the thrush family, and well worthy of the finer artists whose coming he heralds and in a measure prepares us for. You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic. Bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Finally, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.